You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, this evening we turn to Titus again, so I invite you to turn there with me to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3 begins on page 998 of the Pew Bible. This letter of Paul to his close associate, Titus. They were co-laborers in the gospel ministry there on the island of Crete. And Paul had to leave and he left Titus to continue the work there. And now Paul's writing to Titus, giving him instructions and reminding him There's things that are essential for this church in particular, but it has application for all of us in Christ's church. Last week, you may remember verses one and two of chapter three, we looked at instructions for the church and how to live obedient to authorities and gentle towards all people. And so today we move to verses three through seven, which gives the theological rationale, encouraging them to do this with all Um, with all zealousness for God's glory. So hear now God's word. We'll read from Titus 3, verses 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Well, to me at least, we have come to what I think is one of the most beautiful passages in this book. It's one of those to memorize, to ruminate on, to allow the weight of it to impress upon you and to affect you in every way. Many say that verses four through seven appear to be some kind of hymn or maybe a creedal formula. It could have been used as such in the church even before Paul wrote it here. So maybe he's simply repeating something the church is broadly new. Or maybe here he was summarizing other doctrines, summarizing what the churches were already teaching and Paul penned it. And maybe it began to be used as a hymn or a creed after he wrote it. We don't really know. But many things indicate that this is an incredibly special and important passage in the book here of Titus, but indeed in all of our scripture. And Paul brings us back to the great doctrine of salvation. What God has done for us, the faithfulness of God, the grace of God. And he teaches us the nature of our salvation to encourage us in our confidence, but also to encourage us in the way we live towards outsiders. So this evening, we're going to really look at five truths of our salvation that Paul touches on in these short verses. So we'll look at these five truths as we walk through 
the passage. And so let's just begin in verse three. And so we begin with the first truth before salvation, verse three. And he's getting here at what we were saved from. And again, as I mentioned, verses one and two of this chapter, Paul's telling the church how to live, how they ought to live, how they called to live in with regard to rulers and authorities. They're to be submissive to them and, and obedient to them, to be ready to serve them with every good work. And then in verse three, he speaks now, or verse two, how Christians are to live towards outsiders, all people. He says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. So this is how we are to live among the world that we're in. And here we come in verse three, beginning with the word for. There's a logical connection between these first and second verses and now the third verse. There's a connection. Verses three is explaining the why, why we do verses one and two. Now, if you were telling somebody, teaching somebody how to be obedient to the government, how to, how to care for uh, and love your neighbor as yourself, what rationale would you give? What would you tell people is the reason for doing that? Well, yeah, love your neighbor. They're made in God's image. Absolutely. Well, it's better if we, if we treat others gently. It's better to be gentle than to, be, to, be, uh, to, to come down on unbelievers with a hammer because we're not going to win them to Christ that way. Okay, sure. But Paul's explanation here is fascinating. He draws us to the nature of salvation itself. He's coming to salvation to tell us why we're to live in such a way in, a wor- in the world. He first begins here telling us what it was like before Christ for us, what we were like before Christ. And he's telling us what the world is like apart from Christ. This is what we used to be like, but this is what the world is. Verse three, let me read it again. For we ourselves were once, you say we, this used to be us, but this is the world. This is all the unbelievers you come in contact with. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's saying people in the world out there might be difficult. Paul says they might frustrate you. They are so different from you, but you used to be just like that. All of these adjectives describe us apart from Christ. And this develops patience in us, kindness, compassion, towards them because they're simply acting like people who don't know Christ. This is how you would expect those who don't know Christ to act. They're living consistently with who they are. But Paul calls us to remember that time. Do you remember before Christ? Maybe you weren't a murderer and and this malice and envy and hatred he speaks of, maybe you didn't feel that way. Maybe you weren't a hateful person thinking of the world in that way. Maybe you were actually a pretty good person from an outward or civic perspective. Well, Paul's saying, even if you weren't the worst of the worst from an external perspective, your heart was still dead. Your heart was still full of hatred and envy. The posture of every heart apart from Christ is a heart set on self-gratification. Even good works that are done by those apart from Christ are ultimately for self-serving purposes. And although some manifest hatred and malice outwardly more than others, this is the core truth of all of our hearts. We are wicked and separate from God without Christ. So Paul, the Holy Spirit, 
tells us to be kind to people who are like this. This is what you used to be like. The world out there that's fighting and that's bickering and that's pursuing sin and lust and its own pleasure, that is what you were like. They need to be shown mercy and kindness. They need to hear the gospel. It was God's kindness that led to your salvation. Represent his kindness to sinners as well. This doesn't mean we don't call sin, sin. Doesn't mean there's a place for us to do that. But here the emphasis is on kindness and compassion. This is what we were saved from. This is what we were rescued from. We were brought out of this. Remember what it was like before Christ. So before salvation, in verse three, Paul shows us, and we move to four and the first part of verse five, to the accomplishment of salvation. Can man save himself? Can this world that is this way, as Paul just described, can the world save itself? Did you save yourself? Are you so good that you were able able to overcome the wickedness of your heart? Absolutely not. Let me read these verses. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. He saved us. This is how salvation is accomplished. It's not accomplished by me doing something, by by me doing something good enough to, to merit it. It is he saved us. It is Christ who saves sinners. Salvation was a divine rescue mission planned by the Father and accomplished by the Son and applied by the Holy Spirit. Christ's coming is that appearing of the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, that he speaks of here. It is Christ who did it as it was planned by the Father in his life and in his death. Salvation comes from what Christ did, period. We have nothing to add. He saved us. In verse seven, we read, being justified by his grace. Expanding on this a little bit, what did Christ do? He justified us by his life and death. He declared you righteous when you looked to him by faith. He erases your debt of sin because they hung on the cross. Christ accomplished salvation. He justified us. So look to Jesus. Spend your efforts rejoicing in him. That previous way of living is gone. Our heart is changed. Praise him and the Father for such a great salvation that your past is gone and forgiven. You have Jesus himself. So the accomplishment of salvation, and we move third to the basis of salvation, is the middle of verse five. The question here is, why did God save you? Why did he do this? Maybe you didn't do something to earn your salvation, but the point here is that you have no credit for this. You're not better than the world. You're not smarter, wiser, more insightful than anybody else out there. Nothing inherent in you makes you worthy of being saved. You're not more savable. You're not more worthy. You're not more beautiful. You had no great potential. You had no great scouting report. You were dead, dead without hope. Paul says, 
He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The basis of salvation is his own mercy, not because of anything you did or anything God foresaw that you would do. It is God's mercy alone. We back up to verse four, talks about the goodness and loving kindness of God. That is why Christ came. It is his goodness, his loving kindness. And then in verse seven, again, justified by grace. Grace, the goodness, the loving kindness, the mercy of God for you. It is God's mercy and grace alone that saves the Christian has to get all of the pride and arrogance out of his veins. You cannot have an ounce of pride or arrogance because of your salvation. It is not you. And in fact, God tells Israel, you're actually the smallest one. You're the most insignificant one. You're the puny one. That's why I picked you. It's true of us as well. All pride and arrogance is nullified. It's a profound assault on God's grace for you to even think in your heart that somehow you are inherently better than all those people out in the world who do not know Christ. All the people you're angry with in politics, are you arrogant? Comparing yourself to them? Thinking you're so much better? There, but for the grace of God, here goes I. That is the posture, the heart that Paul, by the Spirit, is trying to cultivate in us. God's grace is designed to sweeten you, not to make you prickly. It's to sweeten you, to not make you difficult and hard to get along with at family reunions, not to be the one who's the loudmouth at work in the office. God's grace designed to sweeten you. Fall at the feet of Jesus for his mercy and grace for you, a sinner who deserves none of it. The basis of salvation is God's grace. And we come to verse, into verse five into verse six, and we see here, fourthly, a Trinitarian salvation. Salvation is the work of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Let me read these verses by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. In these short little verses, all three persons of the Trinity are here working for our salvation. It's first the Holy Spirit who regenerates, the end of verse five. The Holy Spirit who gives us new hearts, gives us faith to trust in Christ in the first place. Your faith is a gift even more undermining your pride and your arrogance. It is the Holy Spirit who gave you that new heart, who allowed you, gave you faith to trust in Jesus. And he, Paul goes on to say, he renews you, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the ongoing work of purifying you, sanctifying you, making you more holy through this life. It is the Spirit's work on you that's making you sweeter and sweeter throughout your life. And then we see at the beginning of verse six, this Holy Spirit was poured out on us richly, whom he poured out. And you follow the the he, the pronoun back to its antecedent. It speaks here of the Father. It's the Father who pours out the Holy Spirit on us. And we see earlier, he's referred to generally as the Savior. 
And if we go back earlier in the book to verse one, we see it is God, the father, who's the one electing his people. It's the father who is designing salvation, who's electing a people for the son to redeem. But our salvation begins with the father who pours out the spirit on us. And then in the second half of verse six, the Holy Spirit was poured out by the father on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He is the one who appeared, the one who took on human flesh, who died, who rose again, who ascended, who reigns supreme as truly God and truly man at his Father's right hand now and for eternity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one God in three persons designed, accomplished, and applied our redemption. There's truly no doctrine as sweet as the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. Because without God being triune, there would be no hope for salvation. So we rejoice and praise him. So he reminds us that salvation is Trinitarian. And then finally, we come to verse seven to see the result of salvation. So What? Why does any of this matter anyways? Who cares about the forgiveness of sins? What does justification matter? What does regeneration matter? Verse seven, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. An heir is the one who receives the blessings from the father, right? The heir is the one who receives the gift of the estate, An heir is the one who receives the blessings and the very possessions of the father. And this is exactly how this word is used here. We receive all the blessings, all of the possessions of our heavenly father. But the specific blessing that's named here is eternal life. The hope of eternal life, the certainty of eternal life, the promise of eternal life, that eternal life is yours when you look to Jesus Christ in faith. Yes, it means a life everlasting. It goes on and on and eternal in that way. But eternal here also means full and complete, a life completely full and joyous because it is life received from the Father through the Son by the Spirit. It is a a divinely bestowed life, sharing in his life. So we can be patient here and now. We can be patient under the pressures of the world. We can be patient as it looks like the world might be crumbling around us. Things are changing so quickly, but we can be patient here and now because of this certainty of our eternal life that awaits us. Christ is coming. There's hope of eternal life for us. It is astounding what God has done for us, is it not? The salvation that he has bestowed upon us is glorious. It has changed us from being like the world to now being made like our savior. But it gives us compassion for the world so that we can love those who are in it, those who are as lost as we once were the profound sense of humility and hope we have through this gracious salvation. 
that lets us bypass the worldly fights for worldly ends and instead savor the sweetness of God's grace to us and savor that hope of eternal life. So this is why we come to the doctrine of our salvation. This is why we come here to remind us of what this is all about, who is the one that designed it, why we're here, where we're headed. And surely this doctrine will be good for us as we face ourselves trials of many kinds. We heard of many this evening. There's many more I know you're going through. This is the truth, that it is by God's grace that we are saved. And it is God's grace that anchors us We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, but look at verse eight. Look at the beginning of verse eight. The saying is trustworthy. This applies to verses four through seven that just came before. The saying is trustworthy. These verses are trustworthy. This truth is trustworthy. This is worth taking to the bank. You should believe this and rest upon this. These promises that are yours in Christ. This is God's word and we can take it. Brothers, sisters, as we look to Christ, you can know it is trustworthy. Believe this when God tells you by his word and as the spirit applies it to you and allows you to hear this. You are justified by grace. You are heirs of eternal life. All of you who look to Jesus Christ this day. So look to him if you never have before. These promises are for you if you never have. But even if you have in Christ, we are called to turn away from the the love of the world every day. And this is how we do it. Look at the grace of God. Revel in the grace that he has shown us in Christ. Let us look to him in prayer. What a gracious salvation that we have, O Father. Thank you for Jesus Christ, who appeared, who died, rose to justify us and your spirit who's made us alive and has applied this work to us. And now we can stand confident with eternal life. I pray that this would not be something that puffs us up. This would not be something that makes us arrogant and proud towards the world, but instead may it soften our hearts to them. May we desire the salvation of the nations. May we love our neighbor as ourself. May we pursue them with love and compassion and truth. Enable us for every good work that lies ahead this week. We thank you that you are at work. Oh Lord, may we be found faithful servants in the household of God. In Christ's blessed name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.